Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Holy Spirit, and that is our prayer, Father, that it would not be about us this morning. Although we are here with our, our bodies and our minds and our hearts, we want to engage you, Lord Jesus, but we don't want it to be about us. We want to focus on you. We want our eyes to be fixed upon you. We want our hearts to be drawn to you. We want our, our minds engaged. We want to learn. We want to, to feed off the word. We want everything that's done this morning to draw attention to Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so, Lord Jesus, now in the quietness of this moment, we want to just um, get our hearts prepared to hear from the Word of God. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and do a work in our hearts. Get us prepared. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to receive the truth from your Word, that we might be changed in this 2011 as this year begins, that we would be changed for the glory of Christ. And then our theme, our motto, our, 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 our anthem this year would be, it's not about me, it's about Christ. So thank you, Jesus, for dying and rising again that we might have life. We want to sing about you. We want to talk about you. We want to declare your glories to the end of the world. It's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Children, you may leave now if you're in first grade and down below to Kids on Worship, first graders. The rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. If you need to look in your index or into your table of contents, that's quite all right. It's on page 785 if you need help. As our children are leaving and as we start this new year of 2011, I don't know if you remember last February an event that happened about three miles away from Columbine High School. It was Deer Creek Middle School. It was an afternoon And a 32-year-old man named Bruco Eastwood came and took his rifle and began opening fire upon students. Um, He gunned down two students, two 8th graders. They were not killed. They sustained no major injuries. But 8th grade math teacher David Benke, who was monitoring the parking lot, came in and tackled the shooter, thus averting another Columbine situation. School violence is something that's real in our culture, something that scares me as a parent of children that are in school. It's the world in which we live. Violence is all around us. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, on average, more than three women and one man are murdered by their intimate partners in this country every day. In 2000, 1,247 women were killed by an intimate partner. That same year, 440 men were killed by an intimate partner. Intimate partner homicides account for 30% of murders of women. Violence against women, violence against students. We're surrounded by violence. 
And the video game industry is making a killing upon violence. And I believe that one of the issues related, and I'm not against video games per se, but I believe it, it addresses the issue of prolonged adolescence. Do you know the average age of video game players in the United States? Anybody want to guess? Age 35. Most of them are played by adult males in their 30s. 32% of the market of video games is by adults. But younger children are being exposed to games like Grand Theft Auto and other types of video games where they're just seeing violent images. Violence is all around us. Since 9-11, we've been a country that is in at war, a war against terror. There's been violence in Iraq. There's been violence in Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan, just the Afghan Civil War, which started back in the late 70s, has claimed almost 2 million lives. So we live in a world of violence and cruelty. And so as we stand here on the precipice of the year 2011, there's a lot of uncertainties. I mean, there's a lot of us that may be approaching this 2011 with a lot of uncertainties. There's a lot of questions we're asking. What's going to really happen to the economy? Are things going to get better? What about the employment rate? Is it going to go down? What about taxes? Are taxes going to go up? Are taxes going to go down? What about issues of social issues? What about the issues of gay marriage and, and issues of sanctity of life? What, what's going to happen to our nation in 2011? Will there be more violence? Will there be more school shootings? Will there be more wars? We really don't know. But it was this issue of violence that shocked the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk was in a world of violence much like our own. And maybe you've never heard a sermon on Habakkuk. So today's your one chance. I probably won't preach on Habakkuk for a long time. But sometimes I think it's good to do overviews of Old Testament books. So we're going to do an overview of the book of Habakkuk. His time in Israel's history was much like the time that we're living in. You see, it was a time of of civil war. The nation of Israel, if you remember from your history, had broken into two nations. There was the northern kingdom of Israel. There was the southern kingdom of Judah. And and, and during the time of Habakkuk, Assyria was the major world empire, and it was crumbling. Nineveh, the capital city of, of, of Assyria, was crumbling, and there's a new power on the rise, a new world empire. Maybe you've heard of this empire before. It's called Babylon. Babylon is coming on the scene. Babylon is breathing down the neck of Israel and the nation is living as if they don't even care. The nation is living as if they don't even understand that God may be bringing judgment against them in the the nation of, of Babylon. And so Habakkuk is a prophet. Many people believe he was a prophet that worked in the temple a temple prophet. He knew a lot of psalms. And and as we'll see in chapter 3, it's really a psalm. But Habakkuk is a lot like Job. He asks God the ultimate question. God, where are you in the midst of evil and suffering? God, why does it seem that you don't really care? Does God hear? And so this morning, we're going to just do an overview. I'm not going to go through verse by verse. Every verse of Habakkuk will be here all day. We're just going to do an overview. What are the major themes that emerge from the book of Habakkuk? And see, Habakkuk stands in the stream of other godly men who dared to talk back to God. Moses complained to God. Jeremiah 
complained to God. We all know what Job did. Job complained to God. And here we have Habakkuk, who is confused. He's angry. He's mesmerized. He's frustrated with a God that doesn't seem to be there. And he goes directly to the source. And it's better to talk directly to God than to talk about God behind his back. A commentator said it this way. God is the friend of the honest doubter who dares talk to God rather than about him. And that's what Habakkuk does. He talks to God with some complaining. So let's just dive right in to the book of Habakkuk. Hopefully you found it by now. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Most of your Old Testament prophetic literature starts this way, with an oracle. An oracle is the word, we get the word oral from it. An oracle simply means a speech, a message, a sermon. And so so Habakkuk gets this oracle. Now, the way that it's worded here in the original Hebrew is a little bit different. It's actually the word burden. The burden that Habakkuk received. Habakkuk is going to receive a message that was a weight upon him. It was uncomfortable for him. He, he, didn't want to, he didn't want to experience it. He didn't want to share it. It was a hard thing to experience it. And so in chapter 1, verse 2, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, we have the first unit of thought, and it comes in Habakkuk's two complaints against God. He's going to level two complaints against God. So let's first look at Habakkuk's first complaint against God. In verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth forth perverted. Habakkuk is crying out in anguish against the living God that God is silent. God, I'm crying out to you, but I don't hear an answer. All I get is just this eerie silence. It seems as if you're not listening. God, where are you? I'm praying. I don't get an answer. You seem to be idle. Nothing's happening. You're not active. You you seem to be astonishingly absent, God. Where are you? I'm crying out to you, and I'm not getting an answer. Haven't you been there before? When we're faced with a trial, we're faced with pressure, we're faced with a situation in our life, and we see all this sin and evil around us, and we we begin to wonder if God's really there. Is God for us? Is God paying attention? We get angry. We get frustrated. We may have words with God. We begin to complain. And we begin to to think that God should perform in the ways that we would have him perform. This should bring us great encouragement. Hopefully this is encouragement to you this morning. Habakkuk gives you permission to complain to God. Are you okay with that? You see it all through the Psalms. Godly men who are frustrated, who are confused, who scratch their heads, and they go directly to God and say, God, where are you? God, I don't understand. 
We have permission to go to God. And as Christians who are on this side of the cross, we have a heavenly father who listens to us, a heavenly father who loves us, a heavenly father who cares about us. He wants us to go to him with our problems. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we have permission to cast our cares, cast our anxieties on God. Why? Because he cares for us. God gives you permission to cast your cares upon him. If you've got issues, if you've got problems, if you have doubts, if you have complaints, give them to God. He can handle them. He can handle them. Great encouragement. He may not answer our prayers in the way that we'd want them to be answered. See, that's the rub. We often want God to answer things in our timetable, with our agenda, with our ways. We want to be the ones in control. And so as believers, we often live in this tension of what we believe to be unanswered prayer. God's not answering my prayers. Well, it could be that God is answering your prayers, but he's not answering them in the way that you want them to be answered. You want a particular answer according to your will And when God is silent or when God moves in another way, you think, well, God, you didn't answer my prayer. Well, God may have answered your prayer by moving it in a different direction in his will and his agenda, agenda, his timetable. Now, what's Habakkuk's chief complaint? Violence is all around me. As a matter of fact, the word violence here in the first two chapters show up six times. It's the key word in the book of Habakkuk. Violence. Violence is everywhere. Now, what is this violence that Habakkuk is observing? Let me just give you a little bit of history. Many years earlier, Josiah was the king of of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, Josiah was a very godly king. Under his leadership, there were reforms, there was revival, they found the book of Deuteronomy, they reinstituted Passover. The nation experienced a great revival under Josiah. But then came along many wicked kings, And during the time of Habakkuk, the king that is ruling is the king Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. If you remember last year when I preached through Jeremiah, Jehoiakim was the king that cut up the scroll and threw it in the fire. He's the one that tore up God's word and threw it in the fire. He's said to be the only king that actually killed a prophet. So the king himself is spewing out violent threats against Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Habakkuk. And so violence is coming from within the nation. The leadership is violent. Habakkuk looks around and sees violence all over the place. The people are walking in major rebellion against God. the, The nation is disintegrating right before his eyes into chaotic anarchy. Does this sound familiar? What's going on in our nation? I'm not saying we're on the brink of chaotic, chaotic anarchy, but when you look at the violence and you look at the rebellion, and you look at the sin, it seems as if our culture is disintegrating right before our very eyes here in America. And so we see parallels between what Habakkuk was observing in Israel and what we're observing today. And Habakkuk is astonished. God, I'm I'm crying out to you, but you're not answering me. What's God going to do about it? Well, if we keep reading, it's shocking to find out what God does. God answers Habakkuk's prayer, but not in the way that we would expect. Let's continue reading and see the answer that God gives. Okay, Habakkuk, I may have been silent, but here's my answer. The answer comes in verses 5 and following. 
God responds, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march to the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. What? You're going to do what, God? There's violence in the nation, and the answer that you're giving me is you're going to make us be overthrown by an even more violent nation. Doesn't make sense. That's exactly what God says he's going to do. I'm going to raise up this pagan nation of Babylon, and they're going to march in, and they're going to punish you, Israel, and they're going to take you into captivity for 70 years. I'm raising up Babylon. Now, this is not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. God's going to punish their violence with even more violence from a pagan enemy. Babylon's going to come in, and, and Babylon's going to, do a, is, is going to do an overthrow. Notice verse 11. Go down to verse 11. This is talking about Babylon. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. Who's the God of Babylon? It's not the God of Israel. It's not the Christian God. It's their own might. They are trusting in their weapons. They are trusting in their power. They are a national empire, and they're trusting in their own provisions. And God is going to use this majorly pagan, violent, cruel nation, Babylon, to come in and punish Israel. But Babylon doesn't get off the hook, as we'll see. God will punish Babylon in the end. But here's the issue. Do you have a category in your mind, as a Christian, that God would actually bring in somebody from the outside to discipline his very own children. Do you have a category in your mind for the discipline of God? That God may do things that seem unthinkable to us as Christians as a way to discipline us, as a way to reprove us. Now, God's not going to judge us as Christians, but God will discipline the ones that he loves. It's not beyond the scope of God's sovereignty to do something amazing, outlandish, something we would not even believe of, to discipline his children. Hebrews chapter 12, 6-7 tells us about this. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We've got to have a category in our minds that God could actually bring about discipline upon us as Christians in ways that we would think unthinkable. And Habakkuk's head's reeling at this point. God, I don't understand. There's violence all around me. You're silent. And the answer that you finally bring me is that you're going to punish violence in my country with a pagan ruler, Babylon, coming in to overthrow us. Doesn't make sense. Now let's hear Habakkuk's second complaint. Comes down in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, who do you, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? And he goes on with this complaint. What's his second complaint? The first complaint is, God, I'm crying out to you and you're not listening. Where are you, God? Second complaint is, God, why do you tolerate evil? Now, 
Habakkuk does something commendable here. He appeals to God's character. He appeals to God's character. Notice what he does. He makes a bold confession of God's nature. He he says, are you not from everlasting? Great theology there. God, you're an eternal God. Oh, Lord, my God. The the, the Hebrew word Yahweh, Lord, when you see Lord in all caps there in your Old Testament, it's it's the word Yahweh, the the covenant personal name of God. My, My holy one, God, you're holy. He calls him the rock. Verse 13, you have pure eyes than to see evil. He, basically, Habakkuk's saying, God, you're, you're holy, you're everlasting, you're a rock, you're solid, you're God. Why in the world are you tolerating evil? Why aren't you acting on behalf of your people? God, you're a holy God. You can't stand for this. You can't stand for this wickedness. You can't stand for this evil. Why in the world would you as a holy God operate this way? Why would you do it? You are holy, holy, holy. God, it doesn't make sense. I mean, Habakkuk's head is reeling here. God appears to be silent. Then God answers him in the way that he doesn't want him to answer. And then Habakkuk is thinking, God is so holy, why would he do this? Let's look at God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is Habakkuk speaking again. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk's in waiting mode. I'm going to wait and see what God's answer is. Okay, I, I've, given him a, I, I've given him an earful. I've yelled at God. I've complained to God. Now I'm going to wait. Here's the answer. Verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Probably one of the most important quoted verses in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. For Habakkuk, this means only those who trust in the Lord will live. It all comes back to faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 11? Hopefully it's still ringing in your minds. By faith. By faith. By faith. The righteous will live by faith. It's believing God at his word. It's trusting God. It's living a life of active, passionate obedience to the glory of God. And notice what he says here. In verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. This is speaking of Babylon. Babylon is prideful. Babylon is arrogant. Their soul is puffed up. Judgment will be coming upon Babylon. But notice what it says. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Only those who, by faith, believe in the promises of God will live. Now, this is quoted three times in the New Testament. Three very important times this is quoted in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 is the first time we see it. Very famous passage of Scripture. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now what is the gospel? Hopefully by now, after being here almost six years, you guys can tell me what is the gospel. The gospel is this. When we trust Christ for salvation, 
Our sins are credited to his account. Our sins are reckoned to his account. We don't have to bear those sins anymore. And at the same time, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us so that we stand not guilty before God. We stand not condemned. We stand accepted. We are accepted by God by exercising faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The righteous will live by faith. How will you have eternal life? By believing in Jesus Christ. And once you believe in Jesus Christ, you are counted as righteous. The second time that you see this quoted is in Galatians chapter 3. 10 through 11. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Basically saying is, if you rely on doing good things, if you're trying to earn your salvation, if you're trying to be a good person, if you're relying upon what you can do to bring salvation to yourself, you're under a curse. It's going to get you nowhere. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says it again. You don't earn your salvation. You can't work for your salvation. It's not by obeying the Ten Commandments. It's not by being good. The only way that you're going to have a right relationship with God is by trust in Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, having the righteousness of Christ imputed to you so that you stand not guilty before a holy God. And then the third time we see it quoted is in Hebrews chapter 10, 38-39. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back. We are not destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now this is right before Hebrews 11. What did we just spend a few months doing? Hebrews 11. This comes right before Hebrews 11. The righteous one shall live by faith. We are saved by faith alone. In Christ alone, through grace alone, we get in by grace, we get in through faith, but we continue to live the Christian life by grace, in faith, in Christ alone. And what he's saying here in Hebrews is that we continue to live the Christian life by faith. We're not those that shrink back. And so for Habakkuk and for us, it's always the same. It is through Christ alone. Salvation does not come in good works. Salvation does not come in keeping the law. Salvation does not come in being a good person. Salvation does not come by pulling your bootstraps out, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, trying to be a good person. Salvation comes in banking your entire life on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, can a holy God look at your life? Notice back up in verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil. God cannot look upon evil. God has pure eyes. How in the world is a holy God going to look upon your life when your life is full of sin? The only way a holy God can look upon your life is if you have trust in Christ. And so the God of the universe is pleased to look upon your life because of Christ and to count you as not guilty because of what Jesus has done. This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel's right here in Habakkuk, in the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, in the rest of chapter 2, he pronounces some woes. Woes on the extortioner, woes on the sexually immoral, woes on those that get drunk, woes on those that are violent, woes that are on those that make idols. Now, go down to chapter 2, verse 18 for a moment. This is an interesting little verse here. 2.18. What prophet is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, 
For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Do you realize all an idol is is just a, a product of your own making? It's dumb. It lies to you. It's speechless. It's not the living God. It is an idol. And we can make anything out, anything to be an idol. They're worthless. But notice verse 20. This is how God ends this section. Chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You see, everyone's running around in frenetic greed. Everyone's trying to get, make idols, be greedy, be violent, be sexually immoral, getting drunk, all these types of things. And God says, stop. I am reigning in heaven. I am in my holy temple. I am in heaven. And, and here's my command for the whole world. And literally in the Hebrew, it's hush. Just shut your mouth. That's what God says. Shut your mouth. Hush. Think about Habakkuk for a moment. He spent all this time complaining to God. God, where are you? God, I don't see you. God, why aren't you acting? He, he, he's, he's complained to God. He's given God what he, what he wanted to give to him. He's complained. He's wondering where God is. And now, what, is, what does God tell Habakkuk to do? Shut your mouth and wait. Shut your mouth and wait. Wait in silence. Sometimes just waiting in awed silence is the most appropriate act of worship that we can do. It's okay to vent. It's okay to get mad. It's okay to complain. It's okay to talk to God. It's okay to, to, to cast our cares upon God. But there comes a point where we need to sit and wait and say, God, I've given it to you. I'm not going to say anything more. I'm not in control. I'm not going to talk. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to wait upon you to do things in your way, in your timetable, in your agenda. And so that's what Habakkuk does. He shuts his mouth and he waits. He waits on the goodness and kindness and intervention of a God that he trusts. He trusts in the character of God and knows that God's going to, God's going to come through. He can trust this good, kind, gracious God to accomplish his will. Hush. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And now we go into chapter 3. Habakkuk has asked two good questions. Number one, God, why are you silent when I seem to be crying out to you? You're not there. And question number two, God, if you are there, how come you're not acting? How come you're not doing something about it? How come you're not intervening? God, I'm complaining to you. And he gets to the end of chapter two, hush. And then we have chapter three, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Now, don't ask me what Shigianoth means because nobody knows what Shigianoth means. Most people believe it's some type of musical terminology. This was actually a psalm. This is probably a psalm that Habakkuk sung or led in the worship of Israel. So it's a prayer of Habakkuk, but it's also a psalm. And at the, at the, at the end of the, of the chapter here, we find out that it's to the choir master with stringed instrument, instruments. So in verse 2 of chapter 3, we have the prayer request. It's a great prayer request. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He comes in fear and trembling to the Lord and says, Lord, 
I've heard your report. I know who you are, God. I've heard the stories. I mean, I've read. I haven't read Hebrews chapter 11 yet because it hasn't been written, but I know all those stories that happened in Hebrews 11. I know the crossing of the Red Sea. I know the manna and the quail. I know the capturing of the promised land. I know David and Goliath. I know all those stories. God, I know that you can act. And what's his, what's his request? Do it now. Do it now, God. Don't just do it in the past, but do it now. Do it in my lifetime. God, come and rescue us from these Babylonians just like you rescued the the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. God, do something now. Are you bold enough to pray that? Does that sound arrogant to pray that to God in 2011? God, do something amazing. God, do something unexplainable. I know you did something in my life five years ago, but I want you to do something now. A lot of us are living off of fumes of what God did 10, 20, 30 years ago, and we're not asking God to do a work in our life now. What are you asking God to do in 2011? That he would do something amazing, something unexplainable, something that would show forth his glory, not so that you get the credit, so that God would get the credit. And notice what he ends this little prayer request with. In wrath. Remember mercy. If you want to know where the sinner's prayer is in the Bible, it's right there. In wrath, remember mercy. What do all of us deserve? Wrath. God's wrath. We deserve eternal separation from a holy God because of our sin. We deserve hell. We deserve condemnation. We deserve nothing but wrath. And notice what he says, remember mercy. Jesus, I know I deserve wrath, but I'm crying out for your mercy. Jesus, all I can do is is plead for your mercy. Jesus, don't give me what I deserve. I know I deserve wrath. Don't give it to me. Give me what I don't deserve, and that is mercy. Jesus, please be merciful to me. That's the prayer of every sinner in this room. Jesus, be merciful to me. And if you cry out to this Jesus to be merciful to you, and you're a sinner, you will find his arms wide open to save you, and you can be free from the wrath to come. I don't deserve mercy. But Jesus, because you're a God of love, I ask for mercy instead of wrath. And then in chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, he goes on to recount a lot of wonderful things about God, what God has done in the past, what God continues to do. And then you go down to verse 16, and you find the response here of Habakkuk. It's kind of coming to an end here for Habakkuk. He's, he's, he's spewed out to God his complaints. He's had words with God. God said, hush. Then he prays, God, do something amazing. In wrath, remember mercy. And then look at verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear. My body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. He's trembling. His knees are knocking. He's in worship. I mean, what does Isaiah 66 two say? Isaiah 66 two says this, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Again, this is not the answer that Habakkuk expected. God, I'm crying out for help, and you're going to bring in the Babylonians to conquer us? Doesn't make sense. I mean, he was a man of faith. He waits quietly, 
he realizes that his nation is going to be disciplined for their violence by an even more violent. He's in this position of uncertainty. I mean, think about where Habakkuk is. God has given him this burden. Habakkuk, violence all around you. How I'm going to deal with the violence? I'm going to bring in a pagan outside nation, Babylon, to come in and deal with the violence. And so Habakkuk is waiting. I'm waiting patiently. I don't want this for... Who wants a foreign enemy to come in and invade? He he realizes that a foreign enemy is going to come in and invade. He knows he can't stop it because no plan of God's can be thwarted. And so he just, in faith, realizes that I'm just going to wait patiently. And what does he wait patiently for? The ruin of Babylon. (laughs) I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. God, I'm in waiting mode. I'm in waiting mode. I'm going to wait quietly because I know... No plan of yours can be thwarted. I'm scared. I tremble. I don't know exactly how it's all going to play out, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to trust. Sometimes that's the posture we need to be in. We may not have it all figured out, but the best thing we can do is wait, watch, trust, and let God work it out. may not be comfortable. may be scary. Your knees may be knocking, but God is in control. Then verses 17 through 19, the, the glorious conclusion here to the book. You've probably heard these, these verses before sometime, maybe quoted. Verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now, we don't quite get the issue related to this because it's an agricultural society. But what Habakkuk does is he goes from from ascending order, from, from least catastrophic to most catastrophic. The least catastrophic thing that would happen here would be the fig tree not blossoming. I mean, if the fig tree didn't blossom, that their nation would be okay. But then he goes in successive order and says, but the last thing he says there is the worst thing that can happen would be we would have no flocks or herds. If you lived in an agricultural society and all of your livestock died and all of the crops died, you would be in a major, major hurt. It would be an economic catastrophe. It would be the worst thing that can happen in your culture. Your nation would disintegrate. And Habakkuk says, if all these things happen... If all these things happen, how does he respond? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I'll be joyous. I mean, Habakkuk could have said, well, I'm just going to tough it out, God. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to try to make this work. If if everything fails, I'm going to try to somehow make it work. And that's the way we operate. We try to make things work. But what does he say? I'm going to rejoice in trials. We see this in the New Testament as well. What does Romans 5, 3-5 say? Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Rejoice in sufferings. James 1, 2 through 3, we see it again in James. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it all joy. And let me ask you a question. 
on the precipice of 2011, here's a question. If everything were stripped away from you, your health, your family, your job, your career, if everything was stripped away from you, hypothetically speaking here, would you be satisfied and joyful just to have Christ in your salvation? Would that be enough for you? If everything was stripped away from you just to know that God is your salvation, would that be enough? Now, I don't think this would happen. I don't think God would strip everything away from you, but it could. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. But do you have the mindset? Do you have the attitude of the heart that says, you know, whatever comes my way in 2011, if, if I lose some things, if I lose some people, if, if things, tragedies happen to me, if God takes away things, am I going to be satisfied with just Christ and Christ alone? Am I going to be just satisfied that he is my Savior and I've got salvation? Is Christ truly enough? Notice what he says in verse 19. It's the only time outside of a few psalms that this expression is used. God, the Lord. Maybe your translation says, Sovereign Lord. Yahweh Adonai. It's the, it's the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh, and Adonai, Sovereign God. So when you put these two words together, you get a beautiful wordplay, word picture. God is absolutely sovereign. He's majestic. He's powerful. But yet he's close. He's intimate. He's near. He's in the midst of your suffering. He's sovereign and he's close. What does he say? God, the Lord, is my what? Strength. What does Nehemiah say in Nehemiah 8.10? Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. God the Lord, the sovereign God, the powerful God, the near God, the close God, the covenant God. He is my strength. And what does this God do? He makes my feet like the deer's. He, he uses this analogy of this female deer. He, he, put, he makes me sure-footed on these high places. You've seen deers bopping around. Sometimes you hit deers, but most of the time they're pretty agile, aren't they? They can get on high rocks. They're pretty agile. They don't stumble. Psalm 18.33 says this, He made my feet like the feet of a deer. And set me secure on the heights. This is what God does to his children. Whatever path God has ordained you to walk, whatever trials God has ordained you to go through, and it's going to be different for each body, each person in this room. Whatever God allows or ordains you to walk through, he's going to make sure you don't stumble. Now you may fall off the path here and there, you may lose your footing, but like that deer. God is going to make sure that you get to the finish line. God's going to keep you from stumbling. God's going to pick you up and get you right back on the path. God is going to be there in the midst of it to make sure that you can walk on those high places. He will get you through the adversity. Jude, chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God is able to keep you from stumbling permanently. You may have a few falls here and there, but God will make you like the deer to tread on high places because the sovereign God is your strength. You know, we live in unsettling times. And maybe, I don't know how you've come into this room this morning, maybe for you 2011 is a year of, of, of great 
joy. You're looking forward to it with great anticipation. You're, you're saying, man, this is the, the sky's the limit for 2011. Some of you are saying, like, I don't know about 2011. 2010 was hard. I don't know what God has for me. Regardless of where you land this morning, sometimes we wonder, is God there? Does God listen? Does God care? Why do I have to struggle? Why do I have to go through these issues? And a lot of times we just need to be like Habakkuk. Shut our mouths. Hush. Sit. Wait quietly for the deliverance of the Lord. Yes, complain to him. Yes, for us, throw up our frustrations to him. But at the end of the day, remember that the righteous will live by faith. Will 2011 be the year where the Lord is your strength? What does he say here? God, the Lord is my strength. Verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Will 2011 be a year that you have joy in the Lord? You have strength in the Lord. You live by faith that you pledge allegiance to this great God who is sovereign, who is powerful. Will you be one who lives for the glory of Christ? Would your aim be to glorify Jesus Christ? I want to draw your attention to one last verse that I purposely skipped over. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 14. Would this be your heartbeat for 2011? What a great promise. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Would this characterize your life? Like the waters of the sea, would God's glory cover your life in 2011 so that you would be one that would stand up with your mouth, with your, with your actions, with your attitudes, with everything that you are and say, I'm going to make the knowledge of God's glory everything I'm about in 2011. It all comes back to the song we sing earlier. It's not about me. It's all about Christ. Is this your desire? That the glory of the Lord would fill your life like the waters over the sea. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Maybe you came in this morning and you had no idea who Habakkuk was. You had no idea what this book's about. Maybe you came in this place this morning and you have some real doubts in your heart. You have some real fears in your heart. You have some real frustrations in your heart. You have some complaints against God. Let me just give you permission. It's okay. It's okay. Cast all your cares upon God. He cares for you. He can handle it. But there comes a time where he says, hush, wait, watch, trust, rejoice. The, Lord, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So what I'd like for you to do in the quietness of this moment is just to spend a few moments going before your Lord and maybe internalize what we just read. But you would go to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, you are my strength. You are my joy. You are my rock. And just spend some time in worship before this great God this morning. Go to him with whatever you need to go to him with this morning in an attitude of worship and in prayer.